Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, it's Baibars, the Sultan of Egypt and Syria in the 13th century. Baibars was a Turkic nomad and rose among the ranks of slave soldiers to become a great commander and general, before himself seizing the throne of the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 7, Episode 6, By Bars, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Baibars was born in the 1220s, somewhere north of the Caspian Sea. He was born in the lands of the Kuman Kipchak Confederation, or Kumania, a state which covered a significant portion of the Western Eurasian steppe, a state that ceased to exist once the steppe horsemen from a bit further east got there. When Baibars was born in the first half of the 13th century, the front page story of the Daily World News was always about the Mongols. Genghis Khan united the Mongols in 1206 and conquered as far as he could ride until 1227. This included the Jin dynasty in northern China. The Song dynasty remained in central and southern China and wouldn't fully fall to the Mongols until the 1270s. Further south of China, India was fractured with the Delhi Sultanate, a Mamluk dynasty ruling the north, and several Hindu kingdoms in the south. In Southeast Asia, the Khmer Empire had flourished under Jayavarman VII, Season 2, Episode 9, at the turn of the century, and remained at least somewhat strong, while the Kingdom of Thailand began to grow in power. The Majapahit dynasty of Java had begun to weaken the declining Srivijaya Empire in Indonesia. Across the Pacific, the cultures of the Andes were fractured. The Kingdom of Chimor ruled the coast, while the Incans were a small kingdom centered on Cusco. Mayapan became the dominant city-state of the warring post-classical Maya. Mesoamerica had already seen the fall of the Toltecs, but had not yet seen the rise of the Aztecs. And North America saw the peak of ancestral Pueblo and Middle Mississippian cultures. Across the Atlantic, the Mali Empire was conquering the successor states of the Ghana Empire in Western Africa. The Kanem Empire held parts of Central Africa, and Makuria and Alodia, those Nubian kingdoms on the Upper Nile, were beginning to weaken. The Almohad Caliphate ruled Northwest Africa and parts of Spain, although they were toppled by 1269. To their north, Aragon ruled the eastern Iberian Peninsula, Portugal the southwest, and Leon and Castile were united into a single crown. France was ruled by Saint-Louis, the crusader king, and we'll get to him, while Henry III ineffectively ruled England for much of the century. The Holy Roman Empire covered Central Europe under Frederick II, and the Kingdom of Sicily ruled over that island and southern Italy. Further north, the Teutonic Order ruled over Livonia, and on the other side of the Baltic, 
was the Kingdom of Sweden. Sweden was consolidating, reforming, and growing in power, unlike its neighboring Kingdom of Norway, which was in decline. In Eastern Europe, the Kingdom of Hungary was devastated by a Mongol invasion in the 1240s. Also in the Mongols' sights were the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the Kingdom of Poland, which had already been attacked and pillaged around that time. To the south of that, the Latin Empire ruled the area around Constantinople from 1204 until the Empire of Nicaea restored the Byzantine Empire in 1261. Central Anatolia was ruled by the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum and was eventually conquered by the Mongols in 1243. The Mongols also conquered the Khwarazmian Empire, which ruled over modern-day Iran and much of Central Asia, by 1231, and finally sacked Baghdad, the jewel of the Islamic world, in 1258. This destroyed the already weakened Abbasid Caliphate, which didn't have much power but ruled over Baghdad and was also technically the one true caliphate at the time. So it was a big deal. When the Mongol Empire began to fracture in the middle of the century, the Yuan dynasty encompassed the eastern Mongol lands, led by Kublai Khan. The Chagatai Khanate ruled over Central Asia and Transoxiana. The Il Khanate ruled much of Southwest Asia, from what had just been the Khwarazmian dynasty in Persia, west as far as Anatolia. And the Golden Horde ruled over the western steppe in the north. Which brings us to the Ayyubid dynasty that ruled over Egypt and Syria. Syria really being today's Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, basically northern Mesopotamia and the Levant. Small parts of the coast were held by the Crusaders, usually just called Franks. But the Crusader states were smaller than they once had been, and they were, for the most part, limited to the coast. Of these, the Principality of Antioch lay to the north, near Cilicia, which was ruled by an Armenian dynasty. Further south was the county of Tripoli, and then the Kingdom of Jerusalem, with its capital at Acre, since they didn't actually hold Jerusalem anymore. Syria had been part of the large Seljuk Empire after falling out of the hands of the Fatimid Caliphate, but it had been fractured in no small part because of the Crusaders. It essentially became part of the Abuyid dynasty that Saladin founded, which also ruled over Egypt. So Egypt. Going way back, Egypt was conquered by the Persian emperor Cambyses II in 525 BC then by Alexander the Great in 333 BC, and soon taken by his general Ptolemy, then by Rome, technically in 30 BC, when Octavian defeated the last Ptolemaic ruler, Cleopatra, and her husband Mark Antony. It stayed part of the Roman Empire, even after the empire split, for 600 years. The Persians, under the Sassanid dynasty, took it back in 619 AD, but the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines, regained it after only a decade. But that was not to last, as 639 AD saw the Arab invasion. They did meet stiff Roman resistance, but eventually were able to take it after about seven years of fighting. Then it was ruled by various caliphates. The Fatimids were in charge from the 10th century until 1171, when their vizier, a Kurdish member of a prominent family, seized power. His name was Saladin, 
and he greatly expanded his control beyond Egypt. By the middle of the 13th century, Saladin's dynasty, the Ayyubid Sultanate, was a powerful state, but many of the forces were led not by native generals, but rather by Mamluks. So, the Mamluks. Okay, first the pronunciation. The Arabic pronunciation for a single one is Mamluk. Plural is like Mamalik or Mamalik. So you'll hear people in English say Mamluk, Mamaluk, Mamaluks, and I'm not going to promise consistency myself here. Anyway, in simple terms, Mamluks were enslaved soldiers. I'm not going to go into the history of slave soldiers in the Islamic world, but suffice to say, Mamluks were slaves, but they were respected, and they ranked much higher in society than normal slaves, even higher than commoners in some places. I have seen them described as enslaved mercenaries, and that's probably a good way to think about them. Baibars was a Mamluk, so let's talk about how that happened. He was born a steppe nomad, part of the Kuman Kipchak Confederacy. Located in the western half of the Eurasian steppe, they saw the Mongols in the 1220s. And in the 1240s, Baibar's tribe fled to a place where they thought they were safe. But Baibar's people were eventually attacked, not by the Mongols, but by the people of the region where they thought they were safe, and he was enslaved. He may have been about 14 years old, and so he became a slave soldier, a Mamluk. The Egyptian sultan, al-Sila, had a whole army of Mamluks. According to Abdul Aziz Kowaiter in his book, Baibar's the First, quote, as soon as al-Sila became crown prince, he decided to build up a special force consisting of carefully chosen Turkish slaves who would be loyal solely to him. The westward advance of the Mongols had driven the Kipchak tribes from their territories. A flourishing market had grown up in prisoners captured from these tribes, Al-Sila had dealt with disloyalty from his own emirs, but the Mamluks, they would owe loyalty to him. He would train and educate them, and he would replace his ungrateful officers with these men. He soon had an army full of Mamluks, slaves before they met him. While still technically enslaved, they were now rich and powerful soldiers. Baibars became part of the Bahri Regiment, the premier force in al-Sali's army. He served well and became one of the leaders, second only to Faris ad-Din Akhtai, another Turkic slave. As Baibars was working his way up the Mamluk chain of command, the Seventh Crusade, led by Louis IX, King of France, sought to take Egypt. The Franks were convinced that destroying the Ayyubid power was the key to retaking the Holy Land. In 1249, they attacked the coastal city of Damietta on an eastern tributary of the Nile Delta. Al-Sali, though, left it poorly defended, preferring to make a stand elsewhere. However, in 1250, al-Sali died, and the crusaders marched down the Nile. The sultan's widow, Sajar al-Dur, sent for her son, Turan Shah, and led the state as it prepared to defend itself. The crusaders surprised the first contingent of Egyptian forces, killing the emir who had taken charge of the army. Without the emir, military leadership fell upon Akhtai, Baibars, and Kutuz, three Mamluk commanders. They pushed the crusaders back and were able to gather the defenders together. It is said that Baibars suggested the plan for the next battle, 
to which Sajjar al-Dur agreed. They opened the gate to the city, and the Franks surged in, and they were soon trapped inside. This isn't nearly as silly as it sounds. Damietta was essentially deserted when they had arrived, and they probably thought that after killing the emir in charge of the army, that despite the Egyptian rally, everyone had fled this city to regroup again at the next one. But if that's what they thought, they were wrong. Instead, the Egyptian army was waiting inside to attack this reckless contingent, which included Robert, the Count of Artois, who was killed in the battle. Those crusaders who could fled the city, which was soon renamed Al-Mansura, the Victorious. Back at the main host of the crusaders, those who had escaped dug in with the rest of the camp. Soon the Mamluk-led army attacked and inflicted significant casualties, while the crusaders fortified themselves more. The Franks had just been attacking a city, and now they were the ones that were besieged. After a month, with no hope, they decided to flee back towards Damietta under the cover of darkness. Baibars and the other Mamluks, as well as Tehran Shah, the son of the deceased Al-Sila, who had by now arrived, followed them in hot pursuit. They caught up with them near the town of Farisker, utterly disorganized, and the Franks were all pretty much killed or captured. Louis IX was among the captives, along with thousands of his compatriots. Louis was ransomed, and the Seventh Crusade was over. Tehran Shah became sultan, but he seems to have done something to annoy the Mamluks, perhaps promising them, specifically Akhtai, rewards for their loyalty that he never intended to deliver. Tehran Shah was in a tight spot, though. He had his own Mamluk army, but the Bahri regiment had just crushed the invading crusaders and helped him secure his throne. Now, maybe if he had rewarded them, truly rewarded them, they would have been loyal to him. It is what his father had advised him to do. Instead, he feared their power in court, and he seems to have started putting his men into places of power. The Bahri regiment feared they would be dissolved, lose all power, maybe even be imprisoned, or who knows what. So they decided to secure their position by murdering Tarantia. Some sources say it was Baibars who led the attack. Some say it was Akhtai. But either way, the disaffected Mamluks killed the sultan. In his place, the emir selected Sajjar al-Dur as the new sultan. Well, sultana, actually. It was Tehran Shah's mother, the widow of al-Sali. And she was probably picked because there were too many rivalries among the men of Egypt and Syria. But the Bahri Mamluks would remain loyal to her in memory of her former husband. Not surprisingly, not all of the emirs of the realm supported this unconventional pick, and regions in Syria broke away. In order to secure her throne, she married Iz al-Dun Aibak, a Mamluk commander of a different regiment than Baibars. Aibak suddenly became the most powerful man in the Sultanate, and in May of 1250, he was named Sultan, But this was also unconventional, since he was a slave soldier, and after only five days, the emirs decided to name a six-year-old Ayyubid from Syria as the sultan. Ibak, however, remained the most powerful man in the sultanate, essentially the regent. As strong as Ibak was, he worried that Akhtai was too powerful, 
and he knew that Akhtai's Bahri regiment remained a threat. Over the next few years, Akhtai had a few more impressive victories against the Crusaders, and he began to consider himself just as important as Ibak. Ibak didn't like it, so although it took a few tries, he managed to have Akhtai murdered in 1254. Baibars and some of the Bahri officers immediately fled to Syria, where Ibek's influence was weak. It was just in time, as the very next day, many of the remaining officers were imprisoned or executed. With nobody to stop him now, Ibak also deposed the child sultan and retook the title for himself. He was the first Mamluk sultan of Egypt. But his reign didn't last long. Sajar al-Dur, angling for her own share of power, tired of being pushed aside, and alarmed about her husband's upcoming marriage to a princess of Mosul, not out of jealousy, but out of fear of alliances that he was securing and worries about her own safety, decided she now needed to act. So in 1257, she had Ibak murdered, believing that she still had significant Mamluk support. But Ibak's Mamluk successor in command of the troops, a man named Kutuz, didn't believe her when she said Ibak had died suddenly. His men eventually got the murderers to confess, and she was imprisoned. Ibak's 15-year-old son was named Sultan and had Sajar al-Dur killed. Kutuz, the Mamluk commander, soon deposed Ibak's son and began ruling as Sultan himself. Confused yet? Okay. Al-Sali's son, Taranshah, was a threat to Akhtai and Baibar's troops of Mamluks, so they murdered him. His mother, Sajar al-Dur, was selected as Sultana, and she married a Mamluk from a different regiment named Ibak. Ibak was soon told he was Sultan, then just regent for a young princeling. Ibak had Akhtai killed, Baibar's fled to Syria, Sajar al-Dur had Ibak killed, she was caught, and Ibak's pal Kutuz became Sultan. Easy peasy, right? So, Baibars, while all this happened, tried to make a living in Syria. He was involved in the internecine feuds between the Sultan in Cairo and the emirs in Damascus and elsewhere. He tried to attack Egypt with an army a few times, but was defeated once by Kutuz. He returned to Syria and continued raiding where he could, eventually falling out of favor with the local leaders there. But opportunity came knocking in 1260 as the Mongols made their way to the region. The Syrian leaders did not mount an effective defense and tried to negotiate, then fight, while Baibars waited to be called into action. The Mongol army, led by Hulagu Khan, grandson of Genghis and brother of Kublai and Monke, besieged and sacked Aleppo in 1260 with the help of allies, including Bohemond, the crusader prince of Antioch. Then they took Damascus, which kind of made Cairo the most powerful city in the Islamic world. The Syrian Ayyubid emirs, still ostensibly part of the now Mamluk Sultanate in Cairo, were defeated, really ending any chance of an Ayyubid return to power. With Syria completely shattered, Baibars made his way down to Egypt, offering his services to his former enemy. Egypt was planning on making a stand against the Mongols. Kutuz had received a demand for surrender from Hulagu, who did not mess about, let me tell you. Sultan Kutuz killed the messengers, which I think you're not supposed to do, and prepared to make a stand. 
He agreed to let Bybars back in the fold, giving him a small fife, trying to show his other emirs who were hesitant that he had commanders who were ready to fight. In July, Kutus, Baibars, and the rest of the Sultanate army set out from Cairo to take on the Mongols. Timing was opportune. Now, for a long time, scholars had thought that after the death of the great Khan, his brother Monke, Hulago had to return to Karakoram, which, as any Civ I player can tell you, was the capital of Mongolia. But modern research suggests he left because he just couldn't support a massive army in that oppressively hot region in the middle of summer. He took most of his forces with him and left Kitbuka, a Nestorian Christian from one of the major tribes that was part of the original Mongol Empire that crowned Genghis as Great Khan, in charge. Kitbuka was well regarded as a general, and he fought valiantly in the conquest of Baghdad. Upon learning of the Sultanate's march out, he went to meet them. Baibars led the advance battalion, which set up in Gaza before Kutuz arrived with the bulk of the army. They marched up to Acre and were resupplied by the Crusaders of all people, who at this particular moment feared the Mongols more than the Muslims. Baibars was then sent to locate the Mongol force, which he did near Ayan Jalut, or Goliath's Spring, to their southeast, not far south of Nazareth. He sent word to Kutus and took up a position in the mountains, overlooking the Mongol forces. Baibars laid out the plan, and he had Kutus hide in the highlands in reserve. Baibars and his army began to attack and retreat, attack and retreat, until Kitbuka finally took the bait and ordered a full attack. This wasn't like the step archer classic attack and then retreat while firing arrows, keeping the enemy tantalizingly close but never able to catch you. Rather, Baibars was trying to pull Kitbuka into the highlands where Kutuz was hiding, as his Mameluk forces were making quick strikes and not heavily engaging. The Mongol forces, perhaps pushed along by the defection of some new local allies, although that's not entirely clear, marched right into the trap, and as they were fully committed to attacking the fleeing Baibars and his men, Kutuz's reserve troops were suddenly on their flanks and even in the rear of their forces. The Mongols were surrounded, and they knew it, so they tried to fight their way out. They succeeded in pushing back the Mamluk left side, but at just the right moment, Kutuz himself charged in and rallied his troops. Despite being able to flee to a nearby town and rally somewhat, the Mongols were eventually crushed, and they had to retreat. Kitbuka was killed because of his pursuit of Baibar's force of Bahri Mamluks, perhaps lulled into a false sense of security. Kowaita writes, quote, The Bahri's tactics and excellent training must have surprised the Mongols, whose experience with the Muslims in North Syria would have given them the wrong impression of the strength of the Egyptian army, unquote. With this victory and withdrawal of Mongol forces from the region, Kutuz reunited Egypt and Syria under one sultanate again, thanks in no small part to the help of Baibars. And while saying the Battle of Ayan Jalut saved Islam, which I've seen written, seems to be a bit of an exaggeration considering the Golden Horde was already converted. This was a major step in stemming the tide of the Mongol advances into the Islamic world, and one of the first truly major victories over a Mongol invasion. 
Kutuz was going to reward Bybars for all he did. At least that's what he said. Bybars was supposed to get Aleppo as his prize, a hugely important city in North Syria. But being Amir there would be quite a power base for this former enemy, and so Kutuz rescinded his promise. Who knows if he ever meant to keep it? Maybe he figured he could make empty promises before fighting the Mongols, because what are the chances all these people he promised the same lands would survive anyway? Baibars obviously wasn't happy, and old wounds opened up again. Kutuz had been one of Ibak's leading commanders, no doubt complicit in the murder of Aktai, Baibars' commander. The Bahri knew Kutuz might decide to dispose of them once again. Kutuz knew of the discontent, and he returned to Cairo with Baibars. Co-waiter suggests this is because he knew it would be too dangerous to have Baibars left alone in Syria, or even murdered there with so many allies around. There are multiple stories as to how it happened, but what's important is that Kutuz was soon assassinated, quite possibly by Baibars himself. If not, it was almost certainly under Baibars' orders. After the deed was done, Baibars reached the next camp that had been set up to receive Kutuz that night. Baibars was not necessarily the leading candidate to become the next sultan, but one emir persuaded everyone that Baibars was indeed the killer of Kutuz and, quote, the law of the Turks stipulated that he who killed the ruler should take his place, unquote. Harsh. Baibars obtained oaths of allegiance from those emirs in the camp and then rushed to Cairo rather than wait for the arrival of Kutuz's leading allies to show up. By the time they reached Cairo, he had already secured the capital, and they had little choice but to swear loyalty to him as well. And so, in late October 1260, Baibars became the new sultan of the Mamluk dynasty of Cairo, ruling over Egypt and Syria, and, for completeness, I'll add, the lands in between. Of course he wasn't completely accepted. One leader of the sultanate, a rival to Kutuz, who was bought off by being named governor of Damascus, refused to accept the new sultan. Some other emirs in Damascus did declare for Baibars, and they made off toward Cairo, so this guy sent forces to attack them, but was defeated. Eventually he was captured, and Baibars ended up giving him some subservient role where he was out of the way. Baibars focused his efforts on other important members of his sultanate who, you know, didn't want to be part of his sultanate. He knew the Mongols were going to return soon. And the Franks, the Crusaders, were like right there and hadn't exactly given up on conquest of the Holy Land. But it wasn't in spite of these outside threats that he went after Damascus and the other cities and strongholds that were in opposition to him. It was because of them. He had to deal with the internal issues and had to deal with them quickly where he could find himself with Mongols in front of him and rebellious vassals to his back. And Franks on his flanks, I guess, if we want to get cute. Anyway, in order to get ready for the Mongol invasion, he decided to ask the Mongols for help. Okay. See, at this point, the Mongols were really just one unified empire in theory. In practice, once Monke Khan died in 1259, after eight years as Great Khan, the empire fractured. Kublai became the next great Khan, but his ascension didn't really unify the empire. The two western Khanates, Hulagu's Ilkhanate 
and the Golden Horde had cooperated in attempts to subdue the Middle East. But there was tension between Hulagu and Burke, the Khan of the Golden Horde, in the late 1250s. These started out as interpersonal issues between Hulagu and some of the Golden Horde commanders assisting his conquest. But Burke was Muslim, and some say he was upset with the way Hulagu completely disposed of what was the Muslim caliphate of the time, the Abbasids. The Ilkhanate was also given some lands in the Caucasus that Burke thought should be his. Now, Baibars knew very little, perhaps almost none, of these internal Mongol political issues when, in 1261, he wrote to Burke, ostensibly because he was Muslim and might want to help out. He said Hulagu was defiling Muslim sites, putting Christians in charge, those kind of things, and that he himself was a defender of the faith and would appreciate any help in that task. Baibar's timing was perfect, and Burke received the letter as he was beginning to break away from Hulagu. In late 1262, he told some of his horde to leave Hulagu's service and return home, or go to Cairo if they couldn't get back easily. So in November, they showed up in Egypt to say hello to their new friend, the sultan. In response to this, Baibar sent an envoy up to the Golden Horde, and together they arranged an alliance of sorts, working in parallel, if not directly together, to stymie the Ilkhanate. The Ilkhanate had taken Aleppo, although Baibars hadn't yet really reincorporated that city into the Sultanate. Now this same Ilkhanate force was defeated and driven back from Homs, another important Syrian city, and they holed up in Aleppo until they learned that Baibars was on his way, at which time they took off. In 1261, Hulagu gathered more forces, but he had to divert them to deal with this new war with the Golden Horde. Ilkhanate Mongol attacks still came, but thanks to the Burke Hulagu War, it wasn't the massive wave of Mongol troops that had been expected. And the Mamluks had a relative break from major Mongol invasions for a few years. And so in 1263, Baibars gathered a large army and marched towards Al Karak, a town southeast of the Dead Sea, with a nearly impregnable castle that had been built by the Crusaders but was now held by an Ayyubid prince who hadn't yet submitted to the Sultanate. The large Mamluk army made this guy realize that, uh, yeah, the Ayyubids are done, and Baibars is totally the Sultan now. No problem. No need for a fight. So with this large army and nobody to fight, what's a Sultan to do? Attack the Franks, of course. The Crusader states were not exactly united, and his first target was Acre a Mediterranean stronghold on the southern edge of the Crusader lands. He ended up raiding territories, but despite his best efforts, he couldn't get the metal-covered Christ warriors to come out and fight him. He wasn't willing to start a real siege at this point, so while he did weaken them, he wasn't able to capture Acre. In December of 1264, a large Ilkhanate army came to try and take the town of Albira, a regional capital and the modern-day town of Birichik in southeastern Turkey. They invaded in part because of their rekindled alliance with the Crusader states, who informed them that the Mamluks could not immediately bring an army up during grazing season. While this may have been true, Albira held out for two months until Baibars was able to gather forces and relieve the siege, and when he showed up, the Mongols retreated. 
again with a large force in the field and nobody to fight, he turned toward the non-Mongol invaders, the Franks. In early 1263, he besieged Caesarea, an important coastal city. The Mamluks greatly outnumbered the defenders, and Baibars ordered an all-out assault on the city on the first day of the siege, which was successful. They captured the citadel within a few weeks. According to co-waiter, Baibar's secrecy and his ability to conceal his intent was the key. Quote, when he decided to move against Caesarea, he revealed his plans to no one, but merely announced his intention of going to hunt in the forest of Arsuf. With this pretext, he was able to reach the vicinity of his objective without raising any suspicion, unquote. This kind of obfuscation was kind of a trademark of Baibars, and in this case, he was able to conduct reconnaissance on the region without the crusaders knowing. His arrival at the walls of the city surprised them. After taking it, rather than occupying it, he raised the fortress and walls of Caesarea to keep the crusaders from being able to reoccupy it. He then did the same things to a few other maritime fortresses, Haifa to the north, which fell in a day, and Arsuf to the south, which took about a month before it was captured and subsequently destroyed. The following year, Hulagu Khan died, but his son and successor, Abaka Khan, had similar aims to incorporate Syria and eventually Egypt into the Ilkhanate. And also, like his father, he worked to make an alliance with the Crusaders, with Western Christendom in general, to help defeat Baibars. But the conflict with the Golden Horde, which Baibars was at least encouraging, if not influencing, left the Mongols too busy to mount any major attacks on Syria. With the eastern invaders preoccupied, Baibars had time to continue to focus on the western ones. In 1266, he set out to take Safed, a hilltop fortress a few miles west of the Jordan River, north of Lake Tiberias. It was just too far inland, too well-placed to see Mamluk movements and send warnings back west for Baibars not to go after. He spent the spring raiding all around the region before consolidating his forces outside of Safed in late June. It was taken after a little over a month, and he executed most of the garrison before setting it up as a forward base for his own troops. His next target that year was Sis, the capital of the Kingdom of Cilicia, which was under Armenian rule. Despite watchmen in towers on the mountaintops that the king there had built just for such an occasion, Nobody engaged the Mamluks as they marched into the kingdom. Little detail is known of the Battle of Mari, other than it was a crushing defeat for the Cilicians, and the prince and heir to the throne was captured. The Sultanate forces then pillaged the countryside, took the capital of Sis, and went back home much richer. Late the following year, Baibar set out once again to mess with the Crusaders. He marched out with a large force and... Look, it's the same stuff over and over with this guy. He took a bunch of crusader fortresses. That's just what he did. It's getting boring, to be honest. Anyway, he went after the territory of Bohemond VI, the descendant of Robert Giscard, season 3, episode 4, who was Prince of Antioch and Count of Tripoli. He ruled from Tripoli, the one in Lebanon, not the one in Libya, but Antioch was an important and historical city and had been working feverishly to build an alliance with the Ilkhanate, Baibars raided all around Tripoli, but it was very well defended, so it looked like he did some serious damage and was leaving with his spoils. But, 
Unexpectedly, he wheeled north and besieged Antioch. Antioch had lost its importance, and it wasn't particularly well defended. It didn't have enough of a garrison to keep the Mamluks from eventually scaling its walls. Despite promises of mercy, the sultan showed none upon capturing Antioch in May of 1268. Sources say he slaughtered well over 10,000 and enslaved many more than that. The 1,500-year-old Seleucid capital basically was uninhabited after that point. Further, without that large city to support the inland fortresses, the whole principality of Antioch ceased to be. Baibars continued to raid Crusader territory, which scared the daylights out of Western Europe. James I, King of Aragon, after corresponding with the Ilkhan Aqaba, sailed out from Barcelona in late 1269, because when you're a tough Spanish king and leader of the Reconquista, sometimes you just gotta rescue the Holy Land yourself. He was quickly defeated by bad weather and turned back, but a contingent of Aragonese forces did make it to Acre. The people of Acre were probably pretty excited to see more soldiers arrive until they remembered that crusaders new to the region always just wanted to go attack, and the locals were happy to keep the treaties that were stopping the Mamelukes from attacking them. Not that Bivars was always heeding these truces. Anyway, they went out to teach him a lesson, ran into an ambush, and the crusade was over so quickly it doesn't even get a number, it just gets lumped in with the next one. So, the next one. King Louis IX of France, who had already been on crusade once, was planning a real honest-to-goodness Eighth Crusade, and Bybars heard about it. He returned to Cairo in early 1270 to make sure his defenses were in order. Initially intended probably to recapture Antioch and Caesarea, instead they decided to go after Tunis first in the west. King Louis died during the siege of Tunis, which essentially ended that threat, although it did keep Bybars out of Syria for a year. Just one year, though. Because in 1271, he again raided Crusader territory in Syria. He raided the area around Tripoli before turning in February to the stronghold of the Knights Hospitaller, the Crack de Chevalier, a strategically located castle. Today, it is one of the best-preserved medieval castles in the world, certainly the best-preserved Crusader castle. He besieged the castle for over a month before breaching the outer walls, but eventually he still stared up at a seemingly impenetrable inner keep and thought, ooh boy. But according to King in his article, The Taking of Le Crac de Chevalier in 1271, quote, had not risen from slave soldier to a victorious sultan for nothing. Reflecting that the knights were probably even more downhearted than himself, he tried his luck with a forged letter in the reasonable hope that they would be unwilling to scrutinize it too closely, unquote. He had forged a letter to the hospitalers from their grand master, giving them permission to surrender, and no doubt desperate for just that letter, they didn't even notice it was in Arabic. Okay, it probably wasn't in Arabic, and they surrendered. This time, there was no massacre. The defenders were allowed to make their way to the Crusader states. Bybars might have been glad to have so many people left to tell the story of his taking a castle that even Saladin had tried and failed to capture. After this and a few more castle takings, 
he negotiated treaties with the Templars and the Hospitallers with favorable terms. Bohemond, without the knightly orders to defend him, was in a spot of trouble, as the Mamluks began to look toward Tripoli. But then, a little offshoot of the Eighth Crusade in Tunis caught the attention of the Sultan. See, Prince Edward of England had arrived in Tunis, too late to do anything. So, he caught the next boat to Outremer and showed up to lay some knightly smack down on the infidel. Of course, that didn't happen, but according to Co-Waiter, quote, the mere fact of his arrival probably saved Tripoli from the end Bybars was planning for it, unquote. First, offering terms that Bohemond, despite being desperate for peace, could not accept, Bybars reduced his demands upon hearing of Longshank's arrival in May. A ten-years peace was signed, and Bybars instead went and took Montfort, the only Teutonic castle in the Holy Land. The defenders surrendered after the outer walls were breached, and they were given safe passage to Acre. Edward did not have enough of an army with him to actually relieve the siege. Bybars continued his treaty-making, adding Tyre to his list of non-belligerent, non-allies who weren't going to help the crusade. He then tried to attack Cyprus, but this expedition was a complete failure. Edward, meanwhile, had reached out to Aqaba to send a Mongol force to help him out. The Ilkhanate had bigger fish to fry as usual, but they did send some troops. Before they arrived, though, Edward raided Nazareth and killed some folks there. His brother Edmund showed up with some more troops, including the king of Cyprus and his forces. In late October, the Mongol force finally showed up, not a truly massive force, but something like 10,000 cavalry. They sent the Aleppo garrison running, along with a bunch of refugees, and raided further south. They withdrew to the other side of the Euphrates by the time a strong enough Mamluk force was able to reach the area, and while they carried off significant treasure, the threat from them ended for the time. While this was happening, Edward led an attack against the town of Kakun. He defeated a contingent of the Sultan's forces there, probably killing and capturing allied Turkmen before heading back towards Acre. Baibars started to besiege Tripoli and also raided around Acre where Edward was able to push the Mamluks back. Edward, though, realized he would never have the unity and therefore the forces, to do much damage against the Mamluks. Baibars, for his part, was probably unaware of exactly how united the Crusaders were, and didn't want to commit to a full-out war with them, not knowing if the Ilkhanate was waiting to strike. Both sides saw logic in a cessation of hostilities, and by 1272, a ten-year truce had been negotiated. Edward soon headed back to England, although not before thwarting an assassination attempt. Some sources place this attempt on Bybars, others are not so sure. But it does seem to have been an actual assassin, one of the Hashishiya, the Nizari Ismaili sect, known in English as the Order of the Assassins, and the source of that word. Speaking of the Hashishiya, they had controlled some territory and held some castles, although Hulagu's invasion had put an end to most of their power. They still hung on, but by the end of 1271, Baibars had taken their last fortress and absorbed them into his sultanate. They remained feared, but soon faded into obscurity. Although the Eighth Crusade had ended and Edward returned to England to fight Mel Gibson, the war with the Ilkhanate remained, 
Attempts at negotiations and truces were ongoing, but unsuccessful, and the Mongols entered Mamluk territory at the end of 1272, once again attempting to attack Albira, as well as the fortress of Al-Rahba. As Baibars approached, the Mongol force of about 5,000 withdrew from Al-Rahba to the other side of the Euphrates. The Mamluks crossed the river and defeated them, and upon hearing this news, the siege of Albira broke apart as that Mongol force left for home as well. In 1273, the king of Makuria, the Christian kingdom to the south of Egypt, raided some towns in the upper Nile. There was a retaliatory attack, and skirmishes began going back and forth, until Baibar sent a force of 3,000 cavalry. They captured the Makurian capital of Dongala and installed a puppet king. The 800-year-old Nubian kingdom, which at one time held lands up the Nile beyond Luxor, was no longer independent. But the sultan soon turned away from the south and spent the next few years focused on the Ilkhanate. After dealing with Makuria, Baibars received news that Aqaba was in Baghdad, which was way too close for comfort considering there had been battles with Ilkhanate forces each of the last few years. According to Co-Waiter, quote, Baibars was alarmed. He ordered every man in his realm who owned a horse to join him, and every village in Syria to provide horsemen, each according to its means, unquote. This huge muster of forces was unprecedented in his reign, but nothing ever came of Aqaba's visit, and there were no major battles that year. Diplomacy continued, and Baibars negotiated with Aqaba's vizier in Anatolia, the man who was the power behind the now-subjugated Seljuk Sultan. His name was Pervain, or Parwana, although Kowaiter calls him the Parwana, so that may have been a title. He was a Persian appointed by the Mongols, and had been there for years, but he was in some ways playing both sides. At least Baibar certainly felt like Pervain would be willing to form an alliance with him. In 1275, Baibars attacked Cilicia again and raided it thoroughly. Now, this may have been to clear his way for an invasion of Anatolia soon after, or it may have been that he was convinced by Pervain not to attack Anatolia just yet, and he settled for Cilicia. If this was the case, the question was whether Pervain was buying time to ready his shift in allegiance or to gather Ilkhanate forces to fight against the Mamluks. Late that year, a large Ilkhanate army came into Syria and besieged Albira again, but it eventually withdrew. One reason for this withdrawal may well have been the discovery of the shady dealings of Pervain, who was a major Ilkhanate ally as the leader of Seljuk forces. Or it may have just been taking too long and the Mongols contended themselves with raiding and looting the area for a month or two before leaving for the winter. Pervain spent the next year at the Ilkhanate court, convincing them of his loyalty. During this time, Baibars corresponded with some Seljuk emirs, trying to convince them to rebel when the time was right. Few of them went into open rebellion in the middle of 1276, before the Mamluks had time to gather an invasion force. This garnered the attention of the Mongols, who didn't make any excuses and marched into Anatolia with an army of 30,000 to suppress the rebellion. With a newly arrived and large Ilkhanate force in Anatolia, Baibars had visions of Mongol forces riding into Syria from the northwest. He needed them to not just go in and set up shop there. Besides, if everything worked out well, 
Pervain would join his side, and a fight with the Mongols would be easy work. So, in early 1277, he set out from Cairo, first stopping in Aleppo on his way to Anatolia. Better to fight there than in Syria anyway. In April, he marched from Aleppo, and within a week he encountered and defeated a Mongol force of a few thousand. Now they knew he was coming. He crossed the Taurus Mountains into the region of Elbistan and found a Mongol army waiting to do battle. They were relatively well matched in terms of size, maybe as many as 15,000 on each side, although probably only about three-quarters of the Ilkhanate forces were actually Mongols. The rest were allies, predominantly Georgians. Pervain held out his forces from the battle, somewhat nearby, not helping either side, although both were expecting his assistance. According to Kowader, quote, when the fight began, the left wing of the Mongol army rounded on Baibar's flank and charged his standard bearers, penetrating his right wing. Observing this, Baibar's himself called up reinforcements to support the right wing and enable it to withstand the onslaught of Mongols, unquote. Solidifying his right wing, his left began to crumble, but he shifted forces again, and he charged into the fray himself. He was able to push back the Mongols, who had trashed his left wing, and overwhelm them in the end. Rather than flee, many of the Ilkhanate forces dismounted and fought to the death. It was a massive victory for Baibars, who killed or captured at least half of the enemy forces, if not more. From there, he was able to march to Kayseri, the Seljuk capital in central Anatolia, without too much opposition. He occupied the city by the end of April. Pervain reached the city first, scooping up the Seljuk sultan and fleeing to another city. He, of course, also sent his congratulations to Baibars. And then he sent word to Aqaba, saying now was the time to send a force to crush Baibars, who had limited supplies and was probably overstretched. Baibars either got intelligence of a new Ilkhanate force massing, or was just smart enough to know when he couldn't maintain his position indefinitely, and he withdrew back across the Taurus Mountains within a few days. Aqaba did indeed send a large force, but once he learned Baibars had returned to Syria, he pulled them back, not wanting to risk an invasion of the Sultanate itself. He did, however, have Pervain executed for all of his double-dealing. That was Baibar's final campaign. He died, fittingly, not in Egypt, but in Syria, in Damascus. There is debate on how he died. He may have been poisoned, or he died from drinking too much kumis, a fermented horse milk similar to, but more alcoholic than kefir. It's possible, too, that the kumis was poisoned, and interestingly, that the poison was actually meant for someone else. Whatever the cause, by the summer of 1277, the sultan was dead probably in his mid-fifties. After his death, his son Al-Sayed Baraka succeeded him, but he was only 17 when he took charge, and he might not have had the backing he needed. Not learning the lessons of Taransha, he schemed to supplant some of his father's men whose power he feared. They rebelled and put Kalawan in charge. Kalawan was a contemporary of Baibar's, another slave born in Kipchak lands who eventually rose through the ranks to be a leading Mamluk general and eventually sultan. He defeated a massive Mongol and allied invasion of more than 40,000 soldiers in 1280 at Homs, which had been Aqaba's true response to all the defeats of his smaller attacks over the years. 
The Mongols had a few victories, but a defeat in 1303 near Damascus was their last real attempt at invasion of Syria. The Mamluks were able to kick the Crusaders out of Acre in 1291, which left only minor outposts in the Levant and basically ended the Crusader states. The Mamluks were never really able to expand beyond Egypt and Syria, but they held them for over a century, essentially just as Baibars had established, the most powerful Muslim state, at least west of the Hindu Kush. That lasted until 1400, when Tamerlane invaded Syria and sacked Damascus, ravaging the city. He killed enough people that there's literally a part of Damascus called the Tower of Heads, after what was left in that field after Tamerlane was done with it. Anyway, he moved on to fight the Ottomans, rather than towards Cairo, so Egypt was spared. Tamerlane defeated the Ottomans too, but they eventually recovered and grew in strength. In 1516, after years of conflict, a large Ottoman army invaded Syria and conquered first Aleppo, then Damascus. In 1517, they took Cairo, and the Mameluk Sultanate was no more. It had lasted over 250 years, in no small part because of the government that Baibars was able to build. Baibars was an able administrator, and he enacted reforms that helped to create a state out of the Mameluk Sultanate of Cairo. Cairo was the center of the Muslim world under him, and he did what he could to advance it. He built mosques, he encouraged science and medicine, and he greatly improved the reliability of the postal system, essential for ruling an empire. But it all came at a cost. According to historian Amina Elbendari, quote, Maintaining large armies that were strong enough to expand Mamluk rule, to keep such a huge empire together, and to fight off enemies east and west, entailed a high degree of discipline and order and were, necessarily, funded by heavy taxation, unquote. Besides administration, Baibars helped keep the most powerful Muslim kingdom alive and well during a time when many were falling to conquest. Despite this, it is hard to think of him as a truly religious man. He took in refugee Abbasid leaders and declared the caliphate to be alive and well in Cairo. Nobody actually believed that, but it gave him some legitimacy. He destroyed churches, killed monks in the Georgian monastery of the Holy Cross outside of Jerusalem, and slaughtered priests in Antioch. But it all seemed to be in the name of what he thought would be defense against the Crusaders. He later issued letters to his commanders ordering the protection of those monks in the Monastery of the Holy Cross, and protection for the Christian villagers around it. It was less that he was anti-Christian, and more that he was anti-Crusader. Case in point, he spent almost his entire time as Sultan, allied with Michael VIII, who recaptured Constantinople in 1261 and restored the Byzantine Empire, and was understandably likewise anti-Crusader. Similarly, when he basically finished off the Nizari Ismaili Shia as a power, he incorporated them into his Sunni kingdom, rather than try to destroy them as individuals. He was practical enough to understand that there were going to be people of many religions living in his sultanate. As long as they didn't pose a major threat of assassinations or being a rallying point for thousands of Christian knights marching in to attack him, he didn't seem to be bothered by it. He was a rabid defender of his territory, and he often outright lied to his enemies to get what he wanted, killing many people in the process. But he also allied with the Crusaders when it suited his needs, and he was happy to declare long truces with them once they had been weakened enough not to pose a threat. 
That was probably because more than anything else, Bybars was a soldier. He became a soldier at the age of 14, and he worked his way up the Mamluk ranks until he became their leader. He was ruthless in a time of ruthlessness, but he was effective. He checked the Mongols, and he kept them from taking the Levant in Egypt, and he essentially ended the Crusades in the Holy Land. All the while, he turned a state in turmoil into something of a stable empire that was to last for centuries after his death. Next episode, we move east to another Mamluk sultan who also helped stop the Mongol advance and build an empire out of a state in turmoil. Thanks for listening.